Hey there, friends. Welcome back to another episode of the Bible and Life podcast. My name is John Whitaker, creator and host of the Bible and Life, and I am glad you're joining me on this episode. We have been looking at, over the past handful of weeks, a simple series from the book of Acts, just offering some reflections from some key stories out of Acts that really speaks to and challenges us to think about what does it look like to really be the church today? What does it look like to really be a faithful follower of Jesus today? What are some things we can learn from the example of the apostles and the early church in the book of Acts? And on this episode, we're going to look at really one of my favorite stories from uh, the life of Paul, one of my favorite stories in the book of Acts, both just for the fun nature of the story, the exciting nature of the story, but also the the lesson I think Luke intended to communicate to us, a key reflection for us that is really, really profound and challenging to us. But before we jump into that, let me just remind you that on my website, johnwhitaker.net, there is a free ebook, completely free, and it's designed to help you read the Bible well and apply the Bible to your life well. It's called Bible and Life, and it gives five strategies for hearing the Bible, that is reading and understanding it, and five strategies for heeding the Bible, that is meditating on it and putting it into practice in your life. And so that's completely free at johnwhitaker.net. Uh, a lot of people found great value in that, and so if that sounds like it'd be helpful to you, just swing over there, put in your name, email address. You can have uh, immediate free access to that. It'll also add you to my email list, uh, and I send out, uh, try to do once a month newsletter. To be honest, I struggle to keep up with that, with everything else I got going on, but about once a month. Maybe sometimes I skip a month, I send out a newsletter with some updates and reflections and uh, news and notes about the overall ministry, including this podcast, the listener's commentary, and everything else. So Bible and Life free ebook on my website. Check that out if that sounds helpful to you. All right, let's, uh, let's jump into another reflection from the book of Acts. And to set this one up, let me just ask you this question. What is it that really... What's the filter or the guide that helps you make decisions on what you're going to do each day and then really how you're going to organize your whole life? What's going to be the, the things that you're going to say yes to? What's the things that you're going to say no to? How are you going to spend your money? Uh, what are you going to add to your schedule? Uh, how are you going to change, uh, choose to change jobs or careers or all of that? Like what... What, what's the filter and the guide by which you make those kinds of decisions? And we all have uh, some sort of filter, some sort of motivating principle that guides the, that. We think, oh, this job will make us more money. This job uh, will uh, you know, bring less stress and more joy to our life, right? Like um, this job will give more freedom and flexibility. Oh, uh, these, these people seem so great that they'll bring uh, a lot more kind of relational happiness to our life. Whatever it is, as we make decisions, uh, we have various principles that sometimes we're not even fully aware of that sort of underlie um, our decision-making process and kind of create a filter or a guide that we implicitly make decisions through. What is that? If you were to pay attention to that filter or guide in your life, what are some of the, the principles and the priorities that kind of intersect to create a filter for you 
as you seek to make decisions, both big and small in life, daily decisions, as well as overall life decisions. In this story, in Acts chapter 16, we see Paul making some rather kind of incredible decisions. Decisions that are like, why did you do, if we understand it well, like, why did you do that? Like, what motivated that? Most of us would have maybe chosen to go a different route. Why did you do that, Paul? Or uh, I didn't think you that makes sense in the context of some of the other things you wrote or taught. And so we can read this story, reflect on the story, and figure out what's going on, what's driving Paul, what's the filter through which Paul makes both big and small decisions. And as we look at the Apostle Paul and reflect on his example for us, we can then uh, imitate him as he is imitating Christ. And it can really be challenging to our discipleship. And so Acts chapter 16, let's just kind of pick up where we're at in the story of Acts and in the life of the Apostle Paul. Acts 16 is the beginning of what we now call the second missionary journey. So Paul's had his first missionary journey. And then out of that, there was this event that we typically refer to as like the Jerusalem Council or the Jerusalem Conference, where they're wrestling with the status and the place of Gentiles in the church. And then from there, we get the beginnings of the second missionary journey. And so Paul goes back to visit some of the churches that he planted on the first missionary journey, churches in places like Derby and Lystra and Iconium and Antioch in what is kind of the middle of modern day Turkey. Paul goes back there, and while there, he uh, recruits a co-worker who's going to be a longtime friend and colleague of his, the co-worker Timothy. And Timothy is the son of a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. And so he's biracial and bicultural, and one of the things that means for Timothy is he has not been circumcised. And even though they just had this big conference on circumcision in Acts chapter 15, where they've concluded Gentiles don't need to be circumcised in order to be saved, all of a sudden here, when Paul picks up Timothy and wants to take him with him on his, uh, his travels, he takes Timothy and he circumcises him. Why is that? Like, wait a second. I, I didn't think we needed to do that. That was the whole discussion, the whole point of chapter 15. Why did you circumcise Timothy, Paul? Um, and what Luke tells us is his mom was a Jew, dad was a Greek, and Paul took him and circumcised him because of uh, all the Jews in the area, because they all knew that his father was a Greek. That's the rationale given. Hmm, what does that mean? Not only for Paul making this decision, but for Timothy as a young man willing to undergo that doesn't sound real pleasant. Um, what's going on there? Well, the story continues, and from there, they they begin to travel further west. They want to go into, uh, they actually want to go north to Bithynia and Pontus. Somehow, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't let them. They try to go west into Asia. Again, the Spirit of Jesus doesn't let them. So, they find themselves at the city of Troas on the northwest corner of modern Turkey, and um, 
they have this vision in the night of a man from Macedonia kind of signaling them, waving them, say, come over here and help us. So they conclude that God is calling them to Macedonia. It makes sense. They sail to Macedonia. They travel inland from Neapolis into the Macedonian city of Philippi, a major city in northern Greece or Macedonia. And they spend some time there. And as you're reading through Acts 16, Luke notes that when they and when they entered into Philippi, Luke says which, uh, Philippi was a leading city in the district of Macedonia. And then he notes this, a Roman colony. Well, that's fascinating in Acts 16 because Paul has visited other cities that were Roman colonies and Luke didn't mention it. But in this case, Luke mentions it. And I think it's because of what, the way the story that we're about to in, engage with unfolds. And the message and the point that Luke wants us to acquire from that story. So there they are in Macedonia, a Roman, or in Philippi, a Roman colony, which means it's being treated like a little piece of Rome there in Macedonia. It has all sorts of special privileges for Roman citizens. It has special rights, less taxes, all sorts of things if you're actually a Roman citizen living in this city. So, as the story unfolds, Paul goes, there's not a synagogue in this city, so he goes outside of the city to where he's learned that there's a place of prayer. It's mostly made up of ladies. He meets with them. He shares the gospel with them. Some of them come to faith in Jesus. Key one is a gal named Lydia. She um, begs and begs for Paul and his ministry team to stay at her house. Paul was initially kind of hesitant and resistant. I think it was driven by Paul's financial policies, some of the things that he has learned over the course of his ministry. But eventually she prevailed upon them and they stay at Lydia's house and then they continue ministry in the city of Philippi. Well, one day they're traveling back out to the place of prayer to teach the gospel and teach some of the new believers about Jesus out there. And there's this uh, servant girl who's uh, masters are making a profit off of her because she has uh, this uh, a spirit that enables her to practice fortune telling. The, the Greek actually refers to a python spirit, which um, was the symbol of the famous uh, oracle at Delphi, and it represented the god, god Apollo, who was believed to be able to predict the future. And so somehow this particular servant girl was possessed apparently by some sort of spirit and she could uh, predict future events. And her masters, once they realized that, were setting her up in town and charging people to have their future predicted, almost as if she was like, you know, an oracle, like the oracle at Delphi. And they're making a killing off of this. And while she sees Paul and the spirit within her begins to call out who Paul is as he's walking through town. And this goes on for a while. And eventually Paul is like, enough is enough. This poor girl is traumatized by this uh, spirit. Her masters are taking advantage of her. She's, she's uh, by virtue of a pagan uh, you know, practice and spirit. She's sort of like bad publicity for Paul and his ministry team, and Jesus, and so he's like, enough is enough, and he, he cast the spirit out of her, he cast the demon out of her, and all of a sudden, her masters realize that their hope of making money off her is gone. She can no longer perform. She can't do the job that they were making a killing off of, and so now uh, their loss of profit makes them angry at, at Paul and his ministry team, and so they grab Paul and Silas, drag them before the city authorities there in uh, Philippi, 
and they they accuse them of make charges against them that pit Jewishness against Romanness. Remember, Philippi is a Roman colony. And so they accuse them of being Jews, stirring up trouble in town like they've done everywhere else. And so they're disruptors of the peace. That's actually a major uh, crime for the Romans because they, they have military all throughout their empire to keep the peace. Here's a Roman colony, and they're, dis- they're Jews disturbing the peace, and Jews are looked down on in, in the city of Philippi. So these charges pit Paul and Jesus and Paul's Jewish message against Romanness and Roman sensibility there in the city of Philippi. Um, and what happens is that the city authorities, as the crowd is so worked up, the city authorities decide to just beat Paul and his colleague Silas with lead rods and throw them into jail. Now, again, this is where Paul's decision-making filter is surprising and shocking to us. Paul could have avoided this beating and this imprisonment. He could have very easily. All he had to say was announce that he's a Roman citizen. And boom, hands off, trial delayed, uh, no beating, no imprisonment. But Paul didn't do that. Why not? So once again, we have a surprising decision by the Apostle Paul. The decision to circumcise Timothy when they just had a conference that said you didn't have to do that. Why was that? The decision by Paul here to endure an unjust, illegal beating and imprisonment when he could have avoided it. Why was that? Then Paul and Silas are, so they're beaten, they're put in stocks, they're put in the inner prison. So oftentimes in some of these central prisons, they would move all the prisoners into the central holding cell overnight just as a security measure. So we would assume that um, that was the case because other prisoners are listening to what's happening in the middle of the night with Paul and Silas, but maybe it's just a small enough prison they can hear from their own cells. Not sure. Um, But Paul and Silas are put into the central holding cell. They're put into lead stocks. Remember, their backs have just been beaten, uh, bloodied and bruised with lead rods. So you're uncomfortable and you're miserable. You're in a cold, damp, stone, dark inner holding cell with no light, no windows. You're sitting on the floor with your feet in iron stocks and your hands in chains and stocks. I mean, if you lean against the wall to try to take some pressure off your back, that's just going to be excruciating pain because your back has been so damaged by the lead rods. And so here's Paul and Silas sitting in this cell, and in the middle of the night, what are they doing, according to Acts 16? Well, Luke tells us, there they are, they can't sleep, they're uncomfortable, they're in pain. Rather than whining and complaining and bemoaning their plight, rather than moping to God, saying, God, you gave us this vision of a man calling us over to help you here in Macedonia. We were sure it was, you know, your call to help. And we arrive and we preach and this is the thanks we get for it, right? We get beaten and thrown into jail and put in stocks and it wasn't even fair and we didn't even deserve it. Instead of praying like that, what are Paul and Silas doing in the middle of the night? Luke tells us that what they're doing is they're singing hymns of worship and praise to God in the middle of the night. And all the other uh, people that are in jail, in prison, are listening in on this. And so they're having a little kind of uh, worship concert right there in the jail at Philippi. And all the other prisoners are hearing this. Well, in the middle of their singing and worship to God, 
God intervenes and, uh, and sends some sort of earthquake in the middle of the night. The whole jailhouse is shaken. It, it rouses the chief jailer who's in charge of the whole uh, situation. It, it wakes him up and his family up in the middle of, of the night. Uh, he's immediately certain because he looks out. The 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 doors of the, the the jail are open because of the earthquake. The earthquake actually shook the the jail doors open, and again supernatural help. Paul and Silas's chains have now fallen off. Um, they they could have escaped, but there they are sitting in jail, um, and the jailer sees. The situation in the dark sees the doors open. He just assumes that all the prisoners have escaped. And so he grabs his sword and he's about ready to kill himself because he knew he, that was his fate for losing all his prisoners. And Paul calls out in the middle of the night from the dark of his cell, don't harm yourself because he can see him uh, peeking in, maybe through the light of the moon, who knows. He could see him and he says, don't harm yourself. We are all here. Again, that makes me think that they're all in the central holding cell together. And Paul knows they're all together. No one's escaped. So Paul assures the jailer, don't harm yourself. We're all here. Jailer calls for uh, lights. They light some torches and lamps. He rushes in and he asks the jailer, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Now, he probably knew to ask that question because he'd heard Paul preach in town. Paul's The charges against him were about that. Paul and Silas have been singing and praising Jesus in jail. So he asks what he must do to be saved. Uh, Paul says you need to believe on Jesus and you, you need to get baptized. Paul takes him that night, baptizes he and his whole household that very hour of the night. The man takes him into his own house in the middle of the night and actually bathes Paul and Silas's wounds, bandages up some of their wounds from them being beaten with rods, gives them some food to eat to strengthen them. And then, and then it seems like... Um, puts them back in jail. Paul, I'm guessing Paul suggested that so that no harm would come to the jailer because he cares about this man, right? And he, he doesn't want this man to get hurt. So they're back in jail. And then what happens in the morning is the, uh, the city leaders send two of their police officers to the jail and, and demands that Paul and Silas be released. Release those men. Now, I don't know why they were you know, I mean, maybe it was the earthquake in the middle of the night. Maybe they were afraid that the gods were punishing them for it. Who knows what was going on? But for some reason, the city leaders decided we need to send those men on their way and release them. So they send two police officers to the jail and say, release those men. And again, Paul makes a surprising decision. This, this should be good news. Yes, we're free to go. And we're free to go at the city leader's request. But Paul says, no. We're going to stay right here until the city leaders themselves come and they escort us out because we're Roman citizens. And now he announces it, uh, not just that he's a Roman citizen, but Silas is as well. And now he announces it. Why now and not the day before? What is Paul thinking? Why does Paul demand an escort out of jail from the city leaders? It's fascinating, isn't it? Like, why is Paul making the decisions he's making? Well, here's the net effect of this. Remember, there's not a Jewish synagogue in town. And this, this actually changes Paul's ministry strategy. From here on out, he's only going to spend time in cities where there's a Jewish synagogue because it at least gives him a little bit more of a legal leg to stand on. The fact that there wasn't a Jewish synagogue meant that they had to meet outside of town. It means that Jews were looked on with suspicion in town. The charges against Paul pitted Romanists against Jewishness and all of that. And so the church is viewed as sort of a, 
a just kind of a, a sect or an offshoot of Judaism by the Romans. And so Paul wants the church to actually have some credibility and some standing in town. So if the city leaders themselves have to come to the jail and escort Paul and Silas out of jail through the town square, what does that say to the rest of the citizens who the day before saw them be beaten and thrown into jail? All of a sudden, it kind of raises the stock and raises the credibility level and gives the church a little bit of credibility and maybe even legal standing in the city of Philippi. And this begins to help us understand why Paul is making the decisions that he's making. Why didn't Paul announce his citizenship the day before and avoid the beating and the imprisonment? Well, because the nature of the charges and some of his special privileges as a citizen uh, would have actually compromised the gospel and gospel ministry. It would have basically said that somehow Jewishness is bad. And since the church and Jesus, Jesus being a Jew and the church viewed as sort of a subset of Judaism, that would have actually hindered gospel ministry in town from Paul's perspective. And so, no, we're not going to announce that there because that's going to be bad for the gospel. It'd be better for the gospel for us to undergo this beating and undergo this imprisonment than to announce our citizenship, delay the trial, uh, you know, tell the, the young church and the new believers that we have privileges and rights that maybe you don't have. We can avoid some of this mistreatment. You might not be able to. And it would say that, you know, Jesus is a Jewish man to sort of look down on and frown on in town. So it wasn't going to be good for the gospel to, to announce his Roman citizenship in that moment. And so he chose to keep his mouth shut and endure an illegal, unjust beating for the sake of the gospel. Why did he announce it in the morning? Uh, because that would force the religious or the city leaders to admit their mistake and, and because of fear of repercussions for themselves, escort Paul and Silas right through the heart of downtown Philippi. And thus, that would give the church and the gospel a little more credibility in town. It was good for the gospel. Why did Paul... Um, circumcised Timothy? Well, he did it because, and not because it was necessary for justification, but because it was good for the sake of ministry. It would remove a barrier to the Jews uh, who knew that Timothy's dad was a Greek, and thus Timothy was sort of this mixed bag. He had some Jewish heritage, but he also had some Greek heritage. So let's just remove an obstacle for ministry and the gospel, and Timothy, let's just circumcise you. And Timothy said, okay, if that's best for the gospel, let's do it. And that was at the heart of Paul's filter for how he made decisions. Paul um, was driven by what's best for the gospel. Not always what's easiest. Not always what's going to be the most convenient or the most comfortable. Not what's going to help him avoid the most amount of pain and bring him the most amount of pleasure or success. His real motivating factor, the thing that was at the heart of his decision-making filter was... What's actually best for the gospel? And I find it fascinating that when you read Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, where this very story happens, right, that Paul, that, that's one of the major themes and emphases of the letter to them. Paul had modeled it for them. He had demonstrated it for them. He wants them to embody that too, that the way they interact with each other, the way they interact with their unbelieving neighbors and co-workers, the way uh, they operate in town and the, and the thing that drives their thinking and decision-making is not what's best for me, 
not what's best for my career, not what's best for my comfort, but what's best for Jesus and the gospel. And that, my friends, that is a very challenging, all-encompassing principle that ought to shape all of our lives as followers of Jesus. And I know for myself personally, every time I reflect on this theme, this truth from this story and from the book of Philippians, I'm deeply challenged by it, deeply challenged by it. Like, what would it look like in the decisions I'm making, in the plans I'm making, in the goals I have to say, okay, what ultimately is best for the gospel? So could I invite you to just prayerfully reflect on that, to, to meditate on that, chew on that, to look at your life in those terms, and just to begin to talk to to God about that as you go about your day, as you go about this week, just as you drive around in the car, just to talk to him about, uh, Lord Jesus, what would it look like for me to arrange my life and to make my decisions based on what's best for you and what's best for the gospel? And I trust that as you do that, Jesus will give you fresh insight into your own life and it will really begin to help you walk with him Maybe more fully, more completely, more, more a little bit like the Apostle Paul. It might not always be easy, and it might not always be comfortable. It might not always lead to success by worldly standards, but I can guarantee you this. It'll bring great honor uh, to the name of Jesus, and as a result of that, it'll bring great favor with Jesus. And so may you and I be men and women who increasingly uh, think through our life in terms of what's best for the gospel. Hey, thanks for tuning in to this episode of the Bible and Life podcast. Pray that it's challenging and encouraging to you. This podcast and this whole online ministry is made possible by the generous support of people just like you. So if you're one of those who faithfully prays for and gives to this ministry, thanks a ton for your support. If you've been blessed or impacted by this ministry in some way, the needs uh, for admin help and other things continue to grow and increase. And certainly your uh, donations and your gifts could be put to good use for the sake of Jesus and the gospel. And so would you prayerfully consider that if you've in some way been blessed or impacted by this ministry, would you consider uh, donating to this ministry? You can do so at johnwicker.net. Click the give button. It'll take you to a page on the website of World Family Mission where you can set up a a one-time or a monthly recurring donation. All donations received there are uh, tax deductible as uh, World Family Mission is a registered nonprofit. So thanks a ton for your support. May God bless you for it. I look forward to talking with you again next week.